If you have a Bible there, um, turn to Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. But if you don't, that's fine. You can just follow along on the screen with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by um, going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Um, I'm going to pray for Mike and for us, and then Mike's going to come up. Um, Dear Lord, we give you great praise for your goodness to us and for the way that you've given your word to us here and that we can freely learn from it together. Please help us to listen and understand as Mike speaks now and help him to teach clearly and faithfully. Amen. Hey, so we're in our uh, third in our series of three chalks in the book of Jonah. Uh, and so always it's, it's probably good just to do a little bit of revision. Um, uh, whatever else you can say about the book of Jonah, one of the things I've been saying is that what gives it continuity with the rest of the scriptures is that whatever you can say about the book of Jonah, it's about God's word coming to the world. 
That's how Jonah opens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Dove, the son of truth. And yet what we learn is that this word doesn't come from any impotent God or something like that. It comes from a God who can marshal the forces of creation to bring on that huge storm. He sustains the world. He calls things into being. And not only does he do that, Jonah's confession in chapter 1 verse 9 we read was, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This God is not only the sustainer of the world, he's the creator of all that there is. This God is the creator and the sustainer. He speaks. Things happen. And there's really only two responses. You can be like a Ninevite who was under God's judgment, cried out to him for help and was saved. Or you can be a Jonah who runs away and ends up being judged. And in some senses we go, well, that's a nice little happy ending, isn't it? Look, you, there's a lesson to be learnt there. You know what happens when God speaks. Listen to him. If you don't, you get into trouble. If you do, well, good things happen. You get saved. And yet the story continues. You remember that as Jonah was thrown overboard, the skies calmed down, the seas calmed down, he was gulped by this big monstrous fish. And in the belly of that fish... Jonah cried out for help and he was saved. He was spewed out onto dry land. And once again you think, hey wow, this is another great ending to the story, isn't it? We've learned something. Whatever it is, salvation belongs to the Lord. You can call out to him and God is the one who provides salvation. End of story. But the story doesn't end. We've just read two more chapters. One of the things is, you've got to be asking yourself, hey, hang on, I know there's been lots going on. There's been a big storm, the sailors, the shipwreck, Jonah eaten by a fish, vomited out. What's happened to Nineveh? So the story continues. And when we come to chapter 3, it's really like a new beginning, isn't it? You know, it could have come to a satisfactory conclusion, all except for the big city of Nineveh. And yet it continues. And the story starts in chapter 3, much like how it starts in chapter 1. Arise, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. If if you have a look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 and chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, they're almost identical. The, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. This time, though, the reaction's quite different. The first time, Jonah arose and went to Tarshish. We were surprised about that. This time... The word of the Lord accomplished, is accomplished. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This time, there's no rebellious disobedience. This time, God's word accomplishes what it's meant to do. And so he goes to this great city of Nineveh, sort of the ancient world of big lights, really. Uh, in chapter 1, we heard about Nineveh as a, a wicked city, And now we hear about it as being a great city, a city that takes three days to cross it or three days to visit it. It's a huge place. In the ancient world, 120,000 people, a landmass that takes three days to navigate is a huge city. It's a formidable city. It's a powerful city. This was the city that hosted the king who would destroy northern Israel. It's a big place. And Jonah starts walking into it. One day later, he starts preaching. And you can imagine, can't you, how scared, how timid that must be. I don't know whether you guys have have travelled overseas to the big cities of the world, whether New York, London, Tokyo, Paris. 
you just feel so tiny and so small. Uh, maybe you come from the country and come to the city. It's that sort of feeling. It, it's, it's, it's intimidating. This is a proud, powerful city. And Jonah had a message for city, this city. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's the usual message that comes across, isn't it? Nineveh will be overturned. You will be overturned. What happens is that the announcement that, that the prophets of Israel brings, the announcement that Jesus brings, the announcement that the apostles bring, is that Jesus is Lord, that the Lord is King. He's going to be King. And he's not going to tolerate any rival kingships. You will be overturned. That's the message. God will be King. And you will not. You'll be his people. You will obey it. And if you don't, you will be overturned. But notice the other thing about this message as well. It's 40 more days before Nineveh will be overturned. I think that's one of the characteristic things that you hear about the pronouncement of any message from God in the Bible, is that there's always a time gap between its announcement and it actually happening. Here, it's 40 days. For us, Jesus spoke that the kingdom of God is at hand, that judgment will come. We don't know how long that is. But there's always a time gap between the announcement and it actually happening. For Nineveh, it was 40 days, which makes the time between the announcement and the judgment critical. You can actually make some sort of response to it. And this is critical time for the Ninevites. And what happens next is absolutely frustrating because there's so little details. I would love to have known how Jonah went into the big city, what evangelistic strategies he had to reach 120,000 people. I'd love to know that. But we're not told. All we're told is, the is, is an incredible response. You, you know, there's been exclamation marks all through Jonah, I think. You, you sort of think, OK, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And, and you think, oh my goodness, the, the, the prophet of the Lord arises and goes to Tarshish. Uh, you, you see the incredible things about the storm. You see incredible things about the fish. Lots of surprises. But if you want the biggest surprise, I think, in the book of Jonah is this, that the whole city, 120,000 of them, turned to the Lord. In verse 5 we read, The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And, and it should be still ringing in your ears. This is never the great city. These were proud people. These were competent people. These were capable people. And yet, in the light of God's judgment, in the light of God's announcement of his great message, the gospel, they turned, they repented. What happens here on a gigantic scale We've already seen what happens in chapter 1 when the sailors cried out to the Lord and they were okay. Uh, we, we saw what happened with, with Jonah when he cried out in the belly of the fish and he was saved and vomited up. And here it happens in a massive scale. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. I think the next verse is pretty amazing as well. Uh, the next thing we read about, the news reaching to the king. Uh, uh, put it better, actually. Uh, it says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, uh, it's probably better to say, 
the word of God, which has been mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 1 and chapter 3. The word of the word came to the king. And, and, and you remember powerful kings in, ancient, in, in the ancient Near East that were against Israel. They were fearsome things. And you're expecting, okay, the word is going to reach the king. Wow, fireworks are going to happen. As you remember, you remember Pharaoh confronted with Moses? He didn't just lie down, did he? There's, you're expecting lots of stories happening here. You're expecting lots of fighting, lots of arguing. And yet what you see here is incredible. When the word, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. He does what the rest of the Ninevites did. Have a look at it there, though. Have a look at what he's doing. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the king who abdicates his sovereignty. This is the king who would no longer be on his throne where he prescribes his edicts, where he says this is the thing that needs to be done. He gets off from that. I am no longer ruling. He takes off the, the badges of his office his royal robes, he puts on sackcloth and ends up sitting down on a pile of dust. Friends, that's what repentance is at the end of the day. Repentance is saying, I've got no right to rule my life. Actually, hang on, it's not my life. It's a life that God has given us. It's not up to us to run it, to say what's right and what's wrong. It's not up to us to determine what's right and what's wrong and say, this is how I'm going to go about doing things. What repentance is, is abdicating our sovereignty, our rule over our life and saying, God, you've got every right to run it. You're the one who's got to run my life. And then uh, you can see that bureaucracy hasn't changed in 3,000 years. He takes two and a half verses to explain what's going on in half of this. Uh, By the degree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Here is a response of a whole city. It's an enormous revival. And it's, it's, it's something that you see in the Old Testament as it progresses, as you see people's lives change, as they abdicate their sovereignty and cast themselves onto God. And this is incredible. But don't miss verse 9. Don't miss verse 9. Have a look up there. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I think sometimes we think, well, because we've repented, God's got to forgive us. And so sometimes we can twist him around our little finger, that our actions determine what he does. No, no, we cast ourselves on his mercy, actually. God is a God who's gracious in his nature. It's not up to us. We cast ourselves on him. And he comes with an incredible response in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them upon them the destruction he had threatened. When you call on the Lord, 
you will find mercy. Well, once again, you sort of think, wow, that's a great place for the book of Jonah to finish. You know, we've learnt that when you hear God's word, you can't run away from it, otherwise you'll end up in judgment. When you hear God's word, you just turn to him and salvation will, will happen. It's all great. And now we've even come to a great conclusion about the city of Nineveh. Everything's fine and dandy. But it continues. And so we come to the fourth act in this story of Jonah. And now we talk about Jonah's response, actually. See, Jonah actually sees God's mercy. He sees what the old Anglican prayer book used to say is that in God, it is his nature always to have mercy. God is merciful always. Jonah understands that. He knows that. He's going to say that a few times. But then another shock comes. It's incredible. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I've said? When I was still at home, that's why I was quick to flee to Tashish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't know whether you can understand those words. It's crazy, right? It's sort of like Matthew 18, the unmerciful servant, who's just received so much from the master and he goes about picking fights with, with those, his underlings and wanting, wanting payment back. As you see, God's mercy to the Ninevites, you see Jonah's disapproval. And you can just see grumpy little Jonah folding his arm. And what on earth is going on? Remember, Jonah, you know, he's probably been through the EU and learnt a lot. He's probably been to more college. He knows the right things to say. You remember chapter 1, verse 9? I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the land. Beautiful, isn't it? That's one of his memory verses. Chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation comes from the Lord. God is a God who saves. He knows that. Chapter 4, verse 2. A beautiful truth about God. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knows the book of Exodus, chapter 34. He knows the very character of God. And yet he's got a problem with God. He explains the reason why he actually ran away to Tarshish in the first place. We finally get that reason. And it's because of this, this mercy. I think Jonah's problem is that, well, to put it in New Testament words, I guess, that God so loved the world. Jonah's world was so small that he thought, well, it's okay, God, that I understand your mercy, I understand your salvation, as long as it's for me. Or or maybe even my people. This is what Jonah's was like. He just couldn't get God's mercy beyond his bounds. In verse 3, he gets so upset, it's almost like saying, you you save these Ninevites, God, over my dead body. Verse 3, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah wants to reduce, redefine what he knows about God for himself. My salvation comes from the Lord. Nineveh? I don't know. And he gets angry. And so God responds to Jonah's anger with a great question, really. Verse 4, But the Lord replied, 
Have you any right to be angry? Look, I get your emotions. You're really upset at the moment. But sometimes it's right to examine the reasons for your emotions. Why are you feeling like you're feeling? Can you work through that with me? Think through it. And like in the rest of Jonah, lots of flashbacks and lots of flash forwards. In verse 5, we briefly have a flashback. Uh, something that happened earlier on, I guess, after Jonah proclaimed the message of, of uh, judgment that's coming on Nineveh in 40 days. And he goes up to the east of the city, setting up his grandstand to see what would happen to the city, to see if judgment would happen. And what we find that it's not a very good grandstand, a very good shelter. It's quite inadequate. And then in verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Uh, it's an interesting use of words, actually. The word provide here, uh, or, or the Lord appointed, that God provided, it is the same word that we see back in chapter 1, verse 17, that God provided the huge fish, the giant fish. This is all under God's provision. This is all under God's sustaining power. It's all under God's plans and purposes. And now God provides this miraculous plan and gives him comfort. And Jonah is delighted. He's so happy. Uh, verse 6 says it, it, it's a vine that eases his discomfort. Uh, more literally, it's to save him from distress. God provides the great fish to save him from drowning. God now provides this vine to save him from his distress. Jonah is once again the recipient of God's salvation. Glad recipient here. And then the object lesson begins. Because the next morning, God does to the plant what Jonah wants done to Nineveh. God, by special appointment, once again, provides in verse 7 a worm that eats up this vine. By the same special provision, by the same providing. And then in verse 8, along, God, along comes a hot east wind that once again God provided. And a second time in this chapter, he asked that he might die. Verse 8, he wants to die as he said it. He, he'd rather die than to live. I wonder if you can see how Jonah's just been brought round to a full circle. In verse 3, he realised the mercy of God on Nineveh. He was angry. Now he's angry again. He's angry at this God who, who can provide beautiful things and yet take it away. And in verse 9, God asks him again. God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? This time Jonah actually answers. The first time he didn't. This time he answers. Of course I'm right to be angry. Damned angry is the way that he puts it actually. Who wants to live in a world where lovely things like this vine can be taken away so suddenly, can be destroyed? And he falls neatly into the trap. It's almost like God grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, look at your anger, Jonah. You're angry because you're sorry for that little plant. Really? 
Verse 10, the Lord said, You being concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah's pleasure about the vine, Jonah's displeasure about the vine, was all about his self-centeredness, about provision of comfort for himself. And when it was taken away, it was about his discomfort. There was no concern that the gardener had about the value of the vine. He didn't think like that. Jonah was just concerned about himself. And it's almost if God is saying, Jonah, if you feel like that about the vine, how do you think the gardener feels? The one who actually provided for the plant. And so he puts it in that sort of terms in verse 11. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? A pretty powerful argument, really. Jonah was selfishly concerned about a vine for himself. But how much is it right for God to be concerned about the whole city? That he, it is his. Remember what we learnt about this city of Nineveh? It was a wicked city. It was a great city. But now what we learn is how the gardener, how God sees this city. A city that's helpless, ignorant. In Jesus' words, sort of like sheep without a shepherd, really. Jonah is driven to see Nineveh in a whole new light. Yep, they might be evil people. They might be powerful people. They might be great in wealth, strong militarily. But there are 120,000 people who are ignorant of God, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A thought that's probably never crossed his mind. Well, that's how Jonah ends. Every bit as we read Jonah, as we stop at the chapters, we think, there must be more. And the story goes on. And now we want more. Nothing happens. There is no Jonah 4.12. We actually never learn what happened to Jonah, whether he learnt the lesson or not. And I guess in some ways it's not important to know what happened to Jonah and what he learnt. I guess the story continues with us as Jonah 4.12 continues. We can be so much like Jonah, I think, loving God's compassion and mercy for ourselves. But really, it's self-indulgence and selfishness. We, too, live in a great city. You know, Sydney is one of those places that all the international writers write about. This is the city that you must visit. It's an easy-to-live city. It's a safe city. It's a wealthy city. It's a great city. We're not like Adelaide or Brisbane or Melbourne. They're towns, right? (laughs) This is Sydney. A great city. A wicked city. You can see that. And and, and examples like every every year we celebrate the gay Mardi Gras, for heaven's sakes. We love our evil and we're great. And yet, we're a city that's ignorant as well. A city that's ignorant of the Lord Jesus. People like people who don't know their left from their right. I guess the question I want to ask today is, how do you 
live in your city? How do you live in your city? Do you live in this city for how much you can get out of the city? Or do you live in this city thinking, this is a city filled with people who are like sheep without a shepherd, who are harassed, who don't know what they're doing? Do you have compassion on this city? Do you pray for this city? Do you want God's mercy on this city? Or do you actually just want to get the most, out of, most that you can out of this city? Let's not even think about the city. Let's scale it down a little bit. Smaller than Nineveh. 55,000 people at Sydney University. How do you live at Sydney University? Do you live as one who wants to suck the most out of Sydney University? Get your double degree, pack everything in a couple of days and just rack off when you need to? Or as you walk around in Eastern Avenue, as you go between lectures, you look around and you actually see have eyes like what God sees, his city, the city of Nineveh. People like sheep without a shepherd, that they need God's mercy. Friends, I know it's Thursday in week 13. For a lot of you, this is your last day. You probably won't be even in tomorrow. But it's actually never too late. Never too late to invite someone to annual conference, to catch up with people over the holidays in Stuvat, to do uncover with them, to actually think, hey, wow, you know what? The relationships I've developed here, they're significant. The non-Christian friends I have, well, they're people like that, like sheep without a shepherd. They're ignorant of God. They need his mercy. Please don't be a Jonah in our city. Please be a person who actually sees the world like God sees, like the gardener sees his plants like how God sees Nineveh. When you go travelling to Asia, when you go travelling to Europe, when you go travelling to the big cities of the world, have a great time. Have a great time. It's a beautiful thing to do. But will you look on that world with eyes like God as well, that the gospel needs to go to those places as well? Well, for some of you, you might not be a Christian here. You've just persevered and come to these talks, hung around your friend. That's a beautiful thing too. Can I remind you of what we learnt in Jonah chapter 3? That there's always a time between the announcement of judgment and it carrying through and it actually happening. We know from Jesus' resurrection back 2,000 years ago that judgment will be coming. I don't know when that's going to be. In 2 Peter, Peter says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And and he's delaying his hand, really, so that he's giving you a chance to turn and repent. What's the most crucial time between the announcement and the carrying out of judgment? It's now. It's now. And I don't know how much time you've got. I really don't. As I was reflecting on these talks this week, I remember in year 11, year 12, one of my good friends, Andrew, from school. I remember a week before my four-unit mastery in economics paper, those last papers, the week before that, the headmaster rang me up and said, Andrew has died. A friend that I wanted to share the gospel with, 
over a couple of years since I've become a Christian, I thought, he'd be a great person to become a Christian. I got a phone call to say he, he passed away. He was outside the school gates out at Trinity Grammar School on Prospect Road. He was tying up his shoelaces, finished, looked up, didn't look left, didn't look right, just walked across Prospect Road and got run over by a truck. Too late for him. My non-Christian sister has just been diagnosed with metastatic liver cancer, uh, with a, a bowel cancer that's gone to the liver. I don't know how much time she's got left. The most critical time? Between the announcement of the judgment and it happening. I don't know who you are. One of the hard things about dealing with narratives is that there's often not a clear didactic point. But as you imagine the possibilities for yourself as you dwell in this narrative, as you identify with the characters, who are you? Please don't be like a Jonah. Please see Jonah as your anti-hero if you're a Christian. If you're a person who don't know God, do what the Ninevites did. Do what those sailors on the boat did. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, in the past you spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways through your prophets. And Father, in these last days you, spoke, you speak finally and fully through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for all of us, we pray that that message, that declaration that Jesus is King, we would understand and know. For those of us who know you and love you, Father, we, we want to know that that Lordship is not, not just for us, but for the whole world. Father, help us to make radical decisions to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. Father, for those of us who don't know you, don't know the kingship, help us abdicate our sovereignty and cast ourselves on you, because in you we will find mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.